The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business, and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. Father, again, we ask that the eyes of our hearts can be opened to understand all that you've done for us, the greatness of your love, the nature and fullness of your grace towards us. Father, I pray also that we would embrace it in our own lives and not just understand it. And Father, we, we, we stop and give you thanks for all that you've done for us and we Acknowledge our love for you and uh, the wonderful gifts that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> we have gone from the plan and purpose of God, as Paul understood it, and the fact that what happened in Christ didn't happen, just happened, it was all part of a predetermined plan of God, and Last uh, session we looked at the centrality of Christ in that plan and uh, <clears throat> I was kind of encouraged at the end of last week when we finished talking to some folk because you were so quiet last week so had I kind of gone right over the top of your heads and so on and encouraged to think no it was more that you wanting to ponder <clears throat> what was so what was being taught. Tonight we move to the third of the of the foundational beliefs of Paul upon which his ministry was based. And that is that salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, and one ought to say that I'm not going to really go into it at all uh, in this session, but that it's not only are we saved by grace, but through grace through faith, we actually enter into God's new community, the church, which in Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the new Israel. And uh, that will be the subject of our next session together as Paul has this profound, has to go through a profound transformation of his thinking. That as a Jew, he'd always believed all the purposes of God, the plan of God, the grace of God, the blessings of God were for the Jews, in the Jews and for the, the Jews and so on. And he goes, this, and once he realised that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the promises of God, that his concept of the people of God has to be changed. And of course, his whole theology of the church, his understanding of the nature and purpose of the church, his birth, and we'll kind of, uh, you know, we'll explore that because it's, it's the second half of Ephesians chapter two. The whole thing is opened up for us, but. But uh, the, I needed to say it tonight because Paul would never, and this is something for us to listen very carefully to, right? Paul had no concept of individual salvation. That one was saved into a personal relationship with God. He had no concept like that. His concept was that one was saved into a new community which had a relationship with God. And that was God related to his people. 
And that's not to say that they that as individuals one is not blessed, but one has to say at times one is both blessed and cursed because of what happens in the community. And often as the community is blessed, we get blessed whether we deserve it or not. And there are times when we will suffer as part of the community, not because we deserve to suffer. And there's this concept of a corporate personality or a concept of a people of God, which is foundation to Paul's understanding. And it's important that we understand right up front that salvation is entrance into the new Israel. It's, enter, it's like a way into a covenant community, and it's that community with which God has made a covenant relationship. So that the new covenant which we enter by our faith in Christ, you know, is a covenant in which we become part of a people who have a relationship with God. Now, please understand, I'm not saying we don't have a personal relationship with Christ and we relate to him one-to-one and we pray to him personally. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that Paul's understanding, however, is that, that, that we are saved into or brought into a new covenant. And through that covenant... We become part of a new community. And my concern would be that as we talk about salvation, that because it will seem like we're going to do it, it would seem like we're talking about salvation as a personal thing. And, and whilst it's a personal response, um, it's, uh, for Paul, it's always a corp- there's always a corporate reality, which we might call a kingdom. We might call the kingdom of God, or we might call the church, or whatever it is. But this is the, that sense, and that'll be important for us as we kind of unpack this together. Now, it's easy to say, and I've written in the beginning to say, well, and it's not by works. Paul tried that, and it doesn't work. Works don't work. Uh, and our starting point is going to be Ephesians chapter two, uh, as we're moving through from. Uh, verse 1 through verse 10 um, and we might read it and and uh, then we'll get into it Paul says as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you lo- used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient all of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And we looked at that last week. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, it's not by works, so that no one can boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared 
in advance for us to do. And uh, you know, in here we have um, you know, the richness of really his, his theology of salvation. We've seen it's going to be centered in Christ. But let's, let's pick it apart and uh, I've decided we'll break it apart into sort of basically four, four parts and then we'll add an implication at the end of it. So the first is, um, in terms of the nature of Paul's kind of view of what the gospel is, one has to say it's the, his understanding of the nature of the human condition before the coming of Christ. And uh, we can look at it in 1 through 3. He said we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, Paul, when he uses dead in this sense means that the, the capacity we had for a relationship with God is lying dormant like a volcano. It's just not active. It's not that the capacity is destroyed, it's just not functioning. If you remember from Genesis when when uh, the Lord says, God says to, to Adam, the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. And Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit. Now they didn't die. They didn't die physically. What died was their intimacy with God. That's what died. They were put out of the garden. They were separated from God. Um, they didn't, their capacity for relationship with God didn't die, but their relationship itself had died. That was the consequence. And therefore, I would, I would want to say that the first way Paul would understand the human condition is that man is alienated from God. There is there's an alienation, a separation. If we, look, if we go back to Titus 3, which we uh, referred to last week, in Titus 3, verse 3, it says, At one time you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds and passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You know, it's... Uh, it's, it's a description of the, the consequences of an alienation from God. Uh, an even more specific unfolding of this occurs in Romans chapter 1, which we'll have a look at. Romans 1, starting at verse 18. Paul says, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the un all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what we name, might, know, might be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So the men are without excuse. For although they knew God... 
They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images and man to for images of man to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is God forever. Um, and he says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful us and, and, it, and it sort of unpacks it. Now, what you've got then, Paul's understanding is firstly that before the coming of Christ, man was alienated with God, number one. Secondly, that he was actually hostile towards God. Thirdly, man had created gods of their own making in substitute for God. And fourthly, um, God had chosen to basically abandon man to the consequences of his own folly. And in a general sense, that is true. Paul says it is true. In a general sense, it's true. But what we're going to find is that that God did not leave himself without a witness of what he was really like. Um, both in creation, you know, the creation of things which are made is, reveals his, and there was always an ongoing witness of the nature of God in creation. Uh, if, if man chose to see it, you can observe, he says, Paul, look, the nature of God in, and his qualities and so on in creation. But secondly, he goes one step further. He he gives the law, which is the second point which we're going to sort of go into. And he'll give the law, and in the law there is a further and deeper and much more profound understanding of the nature of God. Um, but given the nature of what humanity had done, God um, says, well, if that's the way you want to live, if you really want to be dead in your relationship with me, if you want to live, live, really want to live the consequences of a life separate from me, I know what it's going to do to you. It's going to kill you. It's going to find it's going to kill your bodies. And and in uh, you know, in the end of that passage, we I didn't go on to, but um, in Romans one um, verse twenty-seven, and it's talking about homosexuality. He says, in the same way men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion, which of course is uh, coming in, uh, which is uh, what we see today, you know, the consequence of homosexual acts as physical death. 
and it didn't begin with AIDS. It was a problem, you know, it was, was equally true in those days. There's, a, there's always a consequence of... Now I'm not saying all AIDS comes from homosexual acts, because we all know that's not true, but we know that that is a primary means of transmission of disease and death. Now, what Paul actually says at this point is that the nature of the human condition before Christ come is that there's this alienation between man and God where they're separated and unconscious of, of they're just not in relationship. But he'll actually go further and he'll say there's actually a hostility towards God. And then he goes further and he says that the, cons the consequence of the absence of worshipping the true God will be the worship of false gods. And then he says, and a consequence of that is a lifestyle which totally reflects the fact that you're not in relationship with God. And God basically took his hands off. And it was the judgment of God was to not... The way God judged was rather than protect man from his folly, he let man fully experience the consequence of his folly. And it was this kind of a passive judgment. And so Paul's understanding is that you know, by, when Christ came, it wasn't like judgment had been stayed. God had already judged mankind in their sin and let them fully reap the consequences in their own bodies of their sin and and Paul, Paul would say that it's, it's when mankind was in absolute and total rebellion against God and what they believed in the worshipping of other idols and living immoral lives it's in, the, it's in that state that God has mercy and sends a saviour it's, it's not that there was anything in the nature of mankind which would attract the mercy and the love of God. You know, it was like the people, though they were worshipping other gods, there was this fasting and praying for God to reveal himself. The mercy of God appears when man's in absolute rebellion against God. And, and he says, he, he writes, he writes the, the Ephesians the same way, he writes the Colossians the same way, he writes to Titus the same way, he writes to Romans the same way. And he says, you know, folks, that's what we were. And we might say, well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't involved in homosexuality, I wasn't involved in murder or adultery, but then you, you, his lists talk about hating God and disobeying parents and malice and envy and jealousy and all these sorts of things. And so his starting point of his doctrine of salvation is and that's what we were. And, uh, and of course he understands and that'll be one of our series. In this series he'll come to us and say actually that life which we used to live was so much part of us, that's what we've got to change. That's what we declare as dead in our baptism. And now let's turn what we believe to be dead into a reality as being dead by being transformed as part of the Christian life. But that's what we were. Um, it's pretty grim, isn't it? It's, um, so there are, there are a number... It's, it's interesting how Paul... Just a number of times, um, 
goes into these lists, his kind of description of the of the nature, our nature before we were before Christ came. Because for Paul it highlights the incredible grace of God. That given that's what we were like, his sending of his son was just this incredible act of, of love and mercy. Remember in Romans 5 it says, you know, for and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. So that's the start, that's the kind of the starting point. And I think we do we do it at this poor certainly a disservice if we think we can understand the incredible love of God without understanding the fallenness of mankind. It's only only as we really see the, our fallen state do we understand how great was God's love and mercy. And uh, when you when you're trying to share the gospel with someone, and they believe they're a good person, you've got no hope because they actually don't believe they need to be saved. They're you know, they're deceived, Paul says, concerning their goodness. Because outwardly they may seem to be good or respectable, but God knows what's in the heart. Paul knows what's in the heart. Anyone like to reflect on that? Or? Okay, let's uh, move on then to the next issue, which is really important. The next thing, and I could have put three as two or two as three. It was a toss-up as to which order we did this. But I've elected to talk about the purpose of the law in a positive sense before I talk about it in a negative sense. But we'll deal with the negative. Is, uh, there's a very interesting passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, this little section we're going to do in 2 and 3, particularly in 2, is um, we've got to get right. right? We've, got to, we've got to get this right and you're going to understand it right or you can join a whole group of heretics which existed in the 4th century, <laughs> which we'll try and prevent. So, uh, I've started in verse 6. It says in verse 6, Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they, or what they so confidently affirm. I, I kind of love that, isn't it? You know, they speak with great confidence, like in the notes, you know. Message unsure, speak more loudly, you know. And uh, Paul says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made for not for righteous or the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. The ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Um, that which conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me. Now, 
This is a very important passage because it makes it clear that the law has a purpose and it's only for sinners. It's not for the righteous. And I want you to kind of hold that for a second. But to understand that, that there's no place, I'll make the statement, I know it's on the tape, and if you stop the tape here, you'll lose, you'll, you can call me a heretic. But there's no role for the law in the life of a Christian. And uh, we'll come back to that, but I'll, I'll live and die by that statement because that's what Paul believes. He does not believe that the law is for the righteous but only for the godless. What then is the purpose of the law? Well, let's turn across to Galatians chapter 4. Remembering it's good, there's nothing wrong with the law. And we'll actually we'll start reading from verse 21. And he's writing to believers. Alright. He's he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Uh, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Uh, his son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way and his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. Um, he's, he's got two different kinds of a birth, right? a, a natural birth, a spiritual birth, or really what he would call one as law and one of spirit. Now, if we could then go back to chapter 3, Galatians 3, Paul says, Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Now, this is Paul's understanding, is that the law is good so long as it leads you to Christ. It's good. It's great. We're not saved by it. Our faith saves us. But the purpose of the law is to confront us with our sin that we might be aware of our need for grace. And one could unpack this at a, you know, a great length from the book of Romans. Because Paul makes a statement in the book of Romans, you know, until the law came, I was not a sinner. Meaning that I was not condemned by my sin. There was nothing to condemn me. But when the law came, it condemned me. 
And when I was condemned, and the Lord did its work and condemned me, and kept continuing, continuing to condemn me, and continuing to condemn me, then I got to the point where I was so condemned by the Lord, I had to appeal to God for mercy. You know, I was then a candidate to receive grace. You know, without the law, I may even consider myself to be good enough for God to love, for God to accept. Without the law, I might be ignorant of my sin and son. The law could never save me, but in fact, the law in reality kept me in a prison of condemnation, awaiting the coming of the mercy of God. It was like a custodian or a prison keeper or an old people will use the word like a tutor. Someone who instructed me of my need for grace. And if it's used that way, it's good. But the moment you try and use the observance of the law as a meaning of getting the favour of God, it becomes a curse because you can never do it. You can never meet its requirements. Now, I want to slightly digress at this point on this issue and again open up an issue which will be a major study in the new year when we start, which will be number, I think it's number, number five in this series. And see, Paul's understanding is that, and, uh, and we'll kind of get into the curse of it in, the, in the, the next section of this. Paul's understanding, his life was someone who tried to please God by keeping the law. That was his life, you know. That was his pre-Christian experience. And he always said it's a curse. It's not a blessing. It's what he calls the curse of the law. And he understands that you can't please God by living under the law. All that does is bring a curse because you continually fail. You continually feel a failure. And not only does salvation come by moving from law to faith, but we're actually going to discover that victory changing our lives, living a righteous life, we're living a life which pleases God, will happen the same way. We'll pass from a legalistic kind of Christianity where we try and become righteous by keeping God's law to a learning what it is to change our life through faith. You know, and it's the whole subject of Ephesians um, 4 and 5 and Colossians 2 and 3. It's the whole... It's not only we saved by faith, but we live by faith. As I say, it's a, it'll be a whole different approach because tragically many Christians kind of get saved by grace and then try and live under the, under the law. And the Christianity is reduced to a series of do's and don'ts and that's the nature of their understanding of what the faith is. And it probably means that they've never understood what real faith is, even in terms of saving faith. And so the purpose of the law is good. And... Now this is the this is the issue we need to tie down. Um, we need to turn to Romans five.
verse 20, it says, The law was added so that the trans so that the trespass might increase. In other words, that the knowledge of sin might increase. And where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is, what this is what's been happening. Okay, Paul starts preaching a gospel and says, you can't get saved by the law, you've got to save by grace. The sole purpose of the law is to make you be aware of your need for God's grace. Yeah. And he kept saying, the law, get rid of the law, abandon the law, all the law will do, make you a sinner, get rid of the law. And he says, you know, the greater the law, the greater the sin, the greater the grace, the need for grace. And then people began to say about Paul that Paul says it doesn't matter what you do. God will save you by grace. Because the more you sin, the more God's opportunity to show grace towards you. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means we died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Now, I want to... I want to talk... This is where Paul was misunderstood and where I think many Christians misunderstood, misunderstand. See, Paul said, the law brings the knowledge of sin... So we need grace. So people heard this and said, well, then if I'm going to be saved by grace, maybe the more I sin, the easier it is to get saved. And I've heard young people make this kind of, kind of statement. You know, it was good for me to sin because then I, I really knew I needed grace. You know? And... Paul further says is that once the law has done its work and brought us to the knowledge of sin so that we through faith receive God's grace, the law's done its work. Its work in our life is finished. Now, what we probably would say, the temptation to say is, well, surely if I no longer live under the law and I'm saved, then I'll live a lawless life. I'll be saved, but I'll just say, I'm once saved, always saved. I'm saved, hallelujah, doesn't matter what I do, I'm always saved. And I'm no, no longer under law. And Paul's answer to this is really important, to say we'll pick this up in the near end. But his answer is, see, Christians are inclined to say it's grace plus law. Really, that's kind of the, the teaching of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Grace plus law. You've got to have both. And so someone becomes a Christian and then immediately people in the church begin to tell them what they can and can't do. They begin to dump law on them. And they think they're helping people by immediately giving them law once they become Christians. For example, if a, you know, a young couple who are living with one another clearly involved in, in uh, immorality, 
comes to our church and they get saved and give their lives to Christ and they get saved by grace on a Sunday night and then they go to a home group and the people are living with them uh, in their home group, find they're living together. The temptation is for people to say, what you're doing is sinful, you've got to separate. Immediately impose law on them. Now, you might be sitting there saying, but Ian, it's wrong. But Paul knows that all the law will do is make them, will condemn them. It doesn't have the power for them to be able to cease to sin. The Lord does not have the power to help us not sin. It only has the power to condemn us. So I'm going into the territory of the study next year, but it's important in terms of understanding where Paul's coming from here. Paul's answer is that the only thing which has the power to actually change the way we live is the work of the Spirit and the truth of the Gospel. John in John 1, he says, you know, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is he understands what the Spirit can change our hearts. The Lord never changes the heart. Now, so Paul says this is the human condition. The law is needed to condemn people, bring them to the point of their need for grace. But it's very dangerous. Paul will never say anything other than the law is good. He never blames the law because the law rightly used is good. But the moment you misuse it, it becomes a curse. And uh, uh, if, we, if we go back to, to Ephesians 2, perhaps we'll do this third section, then we'll have a discussion time. Go back to Ephesians 2. And we read that, you know, it's by grace we're saved through faith. And this is not for our own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, Paul knows out of his own experience that through keeping the law, which is the concept of works, through observing the law, no one can be saved. Um, his testimony, if we go to Philippians 3, this is Paul's only, his personal testimony. And to begin with, he, he, he says, watch out for the dogs, and that's people who want to lead you back under the law. And he says in verse 4, if anyone has, thinks he has reason to put confidence to the flesh, now he's his own effort, I have more. And he, full, he lists all his religious credentials, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and regards the law of Pharisee as for zeal, a persecutor of the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless, you know, an outward observance of the law. But whatever was my prophet, I now consider, and the word really there is done. Human waste. Translated delicately, loss. You know? 
but stronger than that, for the sake of Christ. For what is my, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I consider them rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God and is by faith. You know, his own experience was he'd done everything is right, his parents had done everything right, he had this incredible religious zeal, but it was all external. It was an outward observance. It wasn't the righteousness which comes through faith. It wasn't that which could change the human heart. Um, in Galatians 4, and if you're not familiar with it, but the whole Galatian epistle is Paul writing in this... Uh, he taught them the gospel as he understood it. And then so after he'd left, people had come in and said, grace is not enough. You can be saved by grace, but you've also got to keep the law. And the whole book of Galatians is dealt with the fact that and basically through the early part of chapter 5, he's saying it's not through law, it's through the promise, it's through faith. And uh, he makes this statement in chapter 2, well, in chapter uh, 3, verse 14. Um, he says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does, not, who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And um, just going back to the end of chapter 2, just to throw an extra verse in there, in verse 21, Paul said, I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul knew that he had taken something which is really good, the law. Romans 7.12, and it's in 1 Timothy, we all looked, he says the law is good. And he had used it for completely the wrong purpose. He'd used it to try and attain righteousness. And he knew you couldn't do it. And you know, the evidence for Paul that it didn't work is in trying to do righteousness, he'd actually persecuted the church. He'd been deceived. You know, that's his not, you know, his, the reason he knew that he couldn't be righteous through the law is if anyone had ever had a go at it, he had. And externally, he was faultless in it, except He was completely wrong. He persecuted the church. 
put those disciples to death, try to put them in prison. You know, he was so right, he was wrong. And so he knows, he just knows it's, it's a curse. I just think of this as we just reflect on our own lives. You know, but that God by His Spirit convicts us of sin, we're never going to seek forgiveness. You know, we're never going to seek salvation. We're never going to ask God to, in, to save us through the blood of Christ. Without the Lord, we're never going to be aware of our need for salvation. But if we don't let it go, the moment we get saved, we no longer walk in grace. We no longer walk in faith. We start walking a legalistic life. As I say, I want to unpack this whole issue because it's... It's so important, but isn't this incredible that something which is fundamentally good can become a curse? And Paul knew it. And if you think about the number of people today who think that they're getting to heaven because they keep the the golden rule, because they, quote, live a good life, Paul knows, you know, if you're trying to get to heaven that way and you break one commandment, you're guilty of the whole lot. It's this, it's this, it's a different kind of legalism, isn't it? You know, but it's legalism nonetheless. It's, it's, uh, you, you can see it in Orthodox Judaism where there's 630 odd ways in which you must observe the Sabbath commandment not to walk, work on the, you know, they've got it down. So they can tell exactly what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do to observe the Sabbath. And we kind of look at it and just shake our heads and think, well, what an extraordinary way to try and observe the law. But what's more sad is those who, who actually think that by doing good, they're going to heaven. And, uh, of course... There's a sense in which the law is not doing its work in them because if the law was really doing its work, they would understand that actually they're failing, that they've got sinful hearts, they've got their selfish, self-focused. And, uh, and a number of people, who, I remember over the, over the years, a number of people who said to me, oh, you know, you know I'm sure she'll go, she was a good woman. And yet if you scratch at all behind the surface, you'll find she may have been nice, but she wasn't good. You know, there are lots of areas where there was just a breaking of the commandments. Yeah, well, Paul will say in Galatians 5 and 6, which is the section we'll deal with in the... In, along when we deal with Ephesians 4 and 5 and Colossians 3, he will say, it's interesting, he says, you know, the whole law can be summed up in love. And, uh, and if you love, you're fulfilling the law. And he says in Galatians 5, you know, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, which are legal issues, are of any importance And uh, so he will ultimately say, 
As will James, the, the measure of whether you really have faith is whether you love. There, and uh, it's, it's kind of, and Jesus says, new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I've loved you. You know, it, it, it's a transformation, it's a shifting from observing the law in a legalistic way to a, an expression of the love of God to others. And we'll see how this unfolds. But in so many ways, Paul says, you know, Paul will say and John will say, they all understand this. If we've been loved, you'll love. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul will say, you know, the love of Christ controls me, being persuaded that he died for me, that I should no longer live for myself, but live for him who gave himself for me. But it's, it's now a life lived in response to what God did in Christ, rather a life lived in response to the law. That's the transformation. In, uh, in our church culture, mm-hmm. uh, some, in what ways could we fall into the trap of observing the law? The sorts of people you deal with in, in this situation. Would it be that you have to be at every meeting or would it be that mm-hmm. Trying to perform as well. Mm-hmm. Could be in tithing, the way they view people view tithing legalistically, or could be going to prayer meetings every Friday night, or uh, yeah, the the Colossians two, which I think I mentioned is one of my favourite passages in the New Testament. He do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Um, last Sunday morning, I was at, out at Carlingford, and and for some reason. Uh, I just, without thinking of it, um, I mentioned the fact that um, I had a kind of serious health scare when I was in Russia, and, and I hadn't been, I haven't been saying very much about it because I didn't know whether I had a serious problem or whatever problem, and I had to go through a whole barrage of tests, which I actually went through last Friday, and I either had a minor problem which could be easily treatable by medication, or I had an aneurysm in the brain. Now, there's a pretty big difference between those two. And because I had the symptoms, which could be either of those two. And uh, so we got the the result of the brain scans and everything last Friday, and the brain scans were clear, and everything was fine. And and so the the other thing is what it is, and it'll be right in a couple of weeks. But but, uh, the the end of the... After we got the news, Ginny said, you know, we need to celebrate. (laughs) It was hot afternoon. And I said, yeah, I'm going to have a beer. And Jenny said, I'll have a shandy. And, and so we, Jenny had a shandy and I had a beer. And we went, clink, cheers, you know. And we said to the Lord, thank you, Lord. You know? and, uh, and I was sharing this Sunday morning what had happened. And, and for some reason, apparently in this message, three times I mentioned the alcohol issue. It wasn't in my notes. And it was just that I wasn't making a point. I was just using it as illustrations for some reason. Rather, and, but obviously God was doing something because when it was over, you know, someone came up to me and he said, yeah. in fact, I don't know if it was, if it was Andrew or I'm not sure, someone, somebody said, and it was... I was out with junior youth. Yeah, but this was, you know, a guy who's just been coming, he's an elder in a Baptist church which became a Assemblies of God church, and he said, he said, I couldn't believe you were talking about drinking in this kind of way. And he said, it's just an absolute taboo in the church we've come from. And I said, well, I wasn't particularly making a point. And he said, you spoke loud and clear. You know? <laughs> no, that, that, kind, that kind of issue. I mean, we've got people who probably wouldn't allow it. Own a television would be another form. 
um, you know, all sorts of, even smoking, you know, and, um, obviously it's bad for your health and, and if you live in Australia, you take it seriously and if you live in Holland, you're, you're probably the pastor of a Pentecostal church and probably smoke a cigar. I, you know, there, there are these huge cultural differences from cu- culture to culture to country to country where what we might become legalistic about. Uh, so it's it's a very strong part. Do you know the thing? The thing which concerns me is not so much the expression of legalism, but the spirit of it. That's that's to me is it's uh, you know whether you have to wear a suit and tie or or whatever the particular expression of this might be. Um, it Paul says in Galatians five, if you live under the law, you've actually fallen from grace. You've moved out of the sphere of actually knowing what it is to live in the grace and love of God. That's, that's the curse of it. And the tragedy that we could have Christians who are not enjoying Christian freedom because they're still living under the law is what concerns me. As I say, I'm going to unpack this whole area because it's a real concern for Paul. We're going to unpack this as a whole session in the year. But uh, <laughs> I don't know how far you push it. But uh, <clears throat> I've actually thought one night, one morning, I've had this dream one day that I would sit down in church on my little stool, which I no longer use to preach from. I sit there one day and I say, Today I want to talk to you about the law and open up a cigar and light it. <laughs> See how many people walk out. You know, it was kind of. But I never had the courage to do it. <laughs> But I think Romans 14, it suggests to me it's not a wise thing to do. (laughs) Oh, yes. Anyway, better get off that subject. Okay, let's move on. The nature of saving faith. Now, the issue is you cannot understand the nature of saving faith unless you understand the condition of man and the limited role of the law. You've got no way of understanding what faith is unless you fully embrace Paul's view of the nature and condition of man and the fact that the law can't save you. Because what you've got is you've got a need on the one hand and you've got what can't do it on the other. Now you remove this Remove the, see people as basically nice. And you've got no need for grace. You think you can attain it by doing good? You have no need for grace. So you can only come to really understand Paul's understanding of salvation by grace if you fully are willing to embrace his view of the condition of man before Christ comes and the inadequacy of the law. Then you're in a position to fully understand what he means by grace. It's called faith, saving faith. In the Bible, there are various references. I've given you a list of them, which talks about the obedience of faith. You know, And the obedience, the word is obedience, is because we're asked to believe what... If we believe what we're told to believe, we're obedient. If we don't believe what we're told to believe, we're disobedient. Now, I want to clear up, if we go back to Ephesians 2, 
I want to clear up something as you read, and you're reading your Bible, so we just clear something out of the way here. In verse 6, verse 8, the text says, For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. I want to ask you the question, when Paul says it's a gift of God, I want to ask you, what is the gift of God? When he says, by grace you're saved through faith, this is not of yourself, it's the gift of God. When the statement is made, the gift of God, what is it referring to? Now, it would appear on the face of it that it refers to faith, but it doesn't. Some of you in your Bibles will have uh, probably a marginal note or even a footnote which says, i.e. salvation. What is the gift is salvation. Not faith. Faith is actually an act of obedience which we can't be given other than a supernatural gift of faith to do works and miracles and so on. It can't be given. It requires our obedience. This is a little tricky and I don't want to, as well, so we're kind of pressing time-wise. But you can almost say, I'm going to have to take it from me. In faith... But the the key to this is the word this. It says, says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, that word this, is in in the Greek language neuter. You understand the the concept of masculine, feminine, neuter? Well, you've done done enough languages to understand that. And, And the word this is a pronoun. And any pronoun must have the same gender as the noun it relates to. Faith is a noun. Now the this in the Greek text is neuter. Faith is feminine. And so linguistically, the this cannot be neuter and refer to a feminine noun. Have you, have you kind of, you got that? The word which would be neuter is the noun for salvation, soterion. And as it turns out, the verb form of it's there, it's, but are you saved? But uh, that's why most Bibles will actually have a little note to say, i.e. salvation. And I mention this because faith, as Paul understands it, is something we do. It's not something which is given to us. And I've heard sermons preached on this text Completely misunderstanding what Paul's trying to say here. Grace is the gift. The sending of Christ was the gift. Our salvation through the death of Christ is the gift. But what we need to do is believe the gospel. And that's something we do. Because it's grace, it's not of works, 
It's a, it's a gift. Salvation is a gift. Grace is a gift. But we have to receive it. And our act of receiving is called the obedience of faith. So if we now go to Romans 1... Verse 2, through him and for his name's sake we've received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith or the obedience that comes from faith. What is it that, that we are to do? And that is we're to believe the gospel. And, and this is kind of linking the point four and point five. Paul says, I must preach because faith comes through hearing. So I preach, they hear, they hear, they believe, they believe they're saved. And, and without taking Romans 10 out of its context, because unfortunately he goes on to say, well, I did preach the Jews and they didn't believe. And they refused to believe, but it, that's how it comes. And so faith comes through through this way. And Paul says that, uh, that it's saving faith is embracing the gospel. And the gospel is the, hu the human condition, the conviction of my sin through the work of the law, the impossibility of through the law gaining salvation. And then finally, it's the fact that Christ died for us. That's the gospel. And so in 1 Corinthians 15... I've got, you've got some other verses there for it, but in 1 Corinthians 15.1 onwards, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.1, which I preach to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise... Otherwise, you believed in vain. And what is it he preached to them? I passed unto you as first importance that Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the evidence of his resurrection is that, is that he appeared to the list of those. It's quite simple. That Christ died according to the scriptures. You know, he was buried and he was raised. That... Because if that's the human condition, and if I can't be saved from keeping the law, and if I'm under conviction of the law, something's got to save me. And Paul says, yes, and the answer is Christ. He died according to the scriptures. That was God's plan and purpose, that his death was to, was to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might be reconciled to God. Now, there are all sorts of scriptures there. The gospel confronts us with what we've done it reveals what Christ has done for us and it asks us to trust in the promise of salvation to believe in the promise of salvation that's what it asks us to do and in the presentation of Paul's gospel his absolute conviction was the human need 
the powerlessness of the law to save. The absolute need, therefore, for one to die for many. Now the death of Christ, which Paul in Galatians will say, or in Corinthians will say, is foolishness. The cross is, you know, foolishness and a stumbling block. He says, but it's the only way, given the human condition. It was necessary. It was according to the scripture. And so I've said, ultimately, then Paul's responsibility was to preach the gospel. He says, this is, this is uh, what I must preach. Again, let's just open up for a chance to, for a few comments or questions. What does it mean when he says, unless he believed in vain? Um, the, which is in... Um, in other words, you heard it, but you didn't really believe. The word vain means empty. You know, it's like... After hearing it, you responded, but you really, you didn't really hear what I was saying, and so you're left with nothing. Now, Paul, Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 15, be convinced that in fact it's not true of them. That they, they, uh... Paul will actually say the same thing of himself in Corinthians. He says, having, that he, he says, I press on to, you know, to hold on. He says, I bring my body into subjection, that that I myself may have preached in vain. He's, he's afraid of abandoning the truth of this and slipping back into a law-based righteousness. Because yeah, it had been his life. And uh, so we'll, we'll strike it again powerfully in Galatians. And I, I, I think there's a personal reflection on this. How easy... It is to be tempted to think, I know I've been saved by grace, but God, I've really got to serve you for you to continue loving me. And, you know, to sort of slip back into a kind of a religious legalism. I, mean, I, find, I find that a temptation on a reasonably regular basis. You know, I'm not praying enough. I'm not reading my Bible enough. Maybe I don't love people enough. Maybe when I stand before the throne, God saying, "Well, you know, Ian, you didn't love your church enough." Then uh, the key is something you said earlier, where you're obedient to what you've been asked to do. And so, in this living relationship, this we need to be sensitive to what we're being asked to do. And then obedient if God points out that you didn't love the church enough or you're not doing this. Or that. Yeah, so you're, but, but instead I'm still, of you fabricating it, it comes oh, it's all coming inside. It's all coming from me. But I, the the answer is I've got an, I've, the temptation is to, is to use those feelings as a motivation for loving people more. But once I'm in there, enough is never enough. I've got to go back to saying no. I really believe Christ died for me. And my salvation is not on the base of anything I do. It's not of righteousness. It's not of works. I will never be able to boast. I will never be able to stand before the throne and say, Lord, look at all I did. That's why you saved me. 
I'll never, never be up there. Because when I stand before the throne, God, if he were to choose to do it, can say, Ian, I can tell you all the reasons why I'm not letting you in. Even though I've devoted 40 or 50 years of my life, he can find as many reasons in my life as he can in your life. And I just have to, I have to come back to say, if I, if I go down that road, I've left grace behind. It's not that God may not convict me to love people more, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be preaching something about that on a Sunday morning in Lane Cove, because it is His desire that we love each other more and more and more and more. You know, it's not that that isn't the, the will of God for my life, but it's not my salvation. It's not how I'm saved. I can't. I'm not here trying to earn brownie points to get saved. So how do you balance that responsibility? With the freeness of grace. I mean, that's the constant journey that the struggle gets better. The, the answer is, and this is why this study we're going to do early next year is so important, the answer is to learn to live by faith, not by law. And to, to, to live a life where I really believe I've been saved by grace. And to start my day believing there's nothing I can do which will make him love me more. But I've got a relationship and the things I do really do affect that relationship with him. I can damage the relationship, I can distance the relationship, but he shows me how much he loved me before I'd even done anything for him. The greatness of his love is something I've got to absolutely believe in, be persuaded about. But whether I enjoy the love, experience the depth of that love, can be very much determined by the way in which I live. I can have a relationship with him, but it can be a poor relationship with him. You know, I can, it's a, yeah, so there is this, there is this temptation. And I, I would say, I don't know how much you even understand it comes through our preaching, but we're, you know, I would say as a team in the church, we're absolutely committed to a view of Christian freedom where we, we walk in freedom in our life, not living under the law, but then say, but we don't use that so it becomes license. But we live a life which is, brings honour to him and glory to him and all those sorts of things. But we, we won't do that legalistically. We've got to learn, learn to, to what it is to, to live by faith. And that's, as I say, that's going to be a whole study for us because that's what Ephesians chapter five, you know, uh, four and five is about. It's about living by faith, not just being saved by faith. All right, let's pray. Father, for some of us here tonight who got saved a long time ago, It's so easy to forget what we were. And yet if we're honest, there are still things in our life from the old life. And we thank you that you don't love us less because of those things. Father, we want to thank you tonight that someone preached the gospel to us. Lord, that we heard it and we believed it 
and we were the recipients of your grace. And Father, I pray that we would be wise in how we bring law into the lives of others. Lord, that whatever we say would bring people to you and lead them to Christ. Lord, guard our hearts and minds from legalism, from spiritual pride that we might be proud of the things that we do. And Lord, help us to, to respond to this as Paul did by sharing the gospel with others. Give us open doors of opportunity. Give us boldness to speak the truth. And Lord, I pray we would never be ashamed of the gospel. Because Lord has done such a work in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Dr. Ian Jagelman. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org.